ask that you turn in your Bibles to Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 to 4. If you don't have your Bible, it's not a problem. The uh, scripture verses will be up here. Last week, we looked at chapter 2 and saw Paul saying kind of what won't work as we pursue spirituality, namely following our heart, trying to get an emotional experience, or simply just being a religious, legalistic, uh, moralistic person. All of those, Paul said, lead to destruction of our freedom and not the finding of it. And now in chapter 3, he comes to the positive side. He tells us what really will be powerful, what really will be transformative, what really will lead to freedom uh, in your life. So hear God's word from Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 to 4. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. This is God's holy word. Let's pray. Father, we pray as we look at this portion of your scripture that we would see you, as we sang, as, uh, as brighter, as pure, as fairer than 10,000. So by the work of your Spirit, would you lift our eyes up, and may we see in Christ our Savior, our Redeemer, and our joy. In his name we pray. Amen. Well, it's a story probably familiar to many of you. Um, Most of you have probably heard before or studied at some point in school. It's an ancient story. Uh, It's a story of uh, the Iliad and the Odyssey, the hero Odysseus. You guys might remember some of this. Uh, He goes off with a Greek army uh, to war against the city of Troy, and he's, you know, seeking fame and fortune and a life of adventure. He finds all that, of course, and, uh, and everything is kind of goes well there and through the war, you know, they had the whole Trojan horse deal and all that kind of stuff. But the trip back is really the, the really uh, interesting thing. It takes him almost 10 years to get back home to his wife, Penelope. And one of the major difficulties he, he encounters, and you see the little artwork here, so if you're visual, you'll like that. Um, one of the major things he encounters on his way back are the sirens. You guys remember the sirens? This story sound familiar? So, uh, you know, remember if you, if you sail too close to the sirens, then they start singing to you. And they had the most beautiful voices, the most alluring uh, voices. They would sing and, and they would embody your greatest hopes and dreams and, and, and joys. And they would lure you in. And as you came in, the ship would, uh, would wreck upon the rocks that were all under them. And then they could, um, you know, have you for dinner. So Odysseus, he had a that's no, not exactly pleasant, is it? Uh, Odysseus, he had a different plan, so he found out about the sirens. He wasn't going to be fooled by them, so he had his men uh, ba- uh, put wax plugs in their ears. I don't know if you can see it on the picture or not, but they, they wrapped their heads up, put wax plugs, so the men could not hear the song of the sirens. And Odysseus had himself strapped to the mast, so you can see him strapped up there and all the, the sirens. They, these kind of look more like harpies, but they're kind of all over him, you know, singing their songs. And uh, Odysseus wanted to hear what they were saying and singing, uh, but not have the possibility to be lured to their rocks. And so he had himself shackled to the mast. And uh, so he heard their song and he was screaming, go there, you know, turn there, turn there. But the men couldn't hear. So they rowed and rowed. He said, no matter what I do, just keep rowing, right? So that, that was Odysseus. That's how he avoided the sirens. But, but there was another man uh, in Greek mythology named Jason who also had to encounter uh, the sirens. I don't know how much you guys are up on your Greek mythology about Jason, uh, but he's a kind of a famous character. And I don't know, the, the looks on your faces, I could probably say about anything right now. But uh, <laughs> just... 
just trust me. I mean, this is all accurate. Um, Jason was a guy that was searching for the golden fleece, and he had to go by the, he had to go by the uh, sirens too. But instead of strapping himself, shackling himself to the mast and, and, and being uh, lured, but not, you know, but, but, but being tied up, he decided to bring with him a guy named Orpheus. And Orpheus was the greatest musician that all of Greece had ever known, the greatest singer, the greatest player uh, that, that, that they had ever heard in their life. And so when they got close and the sirens started singing, he had Orpheus strike up a tune. And Orpheus played a tune and sang a song that was so wonderful, so beautiful, that it drowned out the alluring promises of the sirens. It drowned them out. And so you can see just from that story that, you know, both men obeyed, right? Odysseus obeyed, Jason obeyed. They both avoided danger. They both, you know, kept free from sin and shipwreck and all that kind of stuff. But only one person was really changed. See, Odysseus removed the ability to sin by shackling himself to the mast, but Jason replaced his desire to sin with a better desire, with a stronger promise, with a sweeter tune, as it were. So Odysseus, you know, his ropes help, helped him um, avoid the sirens, but they could not prevent him from avoiding his lust for what they promised. And Jason heard the promise of the siren, but his heart and mind were set on a sweeter song. He set his heart and mind on something greater, more beautiful, and so not only avoided destruction, but he received life as well. And I think as we think about true spirituality or, or Christianity or just following Jesus, I think we often think about Odysseus's method. Like, my whole life is going to be obeying these rules, shackling myself to a mast, that uh, I'll be hearing all these great things that other people are doing that sound so beautiful and alluring and sweet and, and promising, and I'll just have to shackle myself here and not be able to do anything. And that would be a miserable life indeed if spirituality were only the negative of resisting sin. But in fact, it is also the positive of hearing a more beautiful melody, of hearing a sweeter tune, of having better promises and a more beautiful Savior, having our hearts and minds focused on and captured by a more fascinating beauty. And so that's why Paul says to us, the way for transformation, the way to freedom is not just to get rid of the sin, but to focus on and set our minds and our hearts on Christ. That's what he says in verses 1 and 2. Set, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things that are above and not on the, thing, not the things of the earth. So Paul is saying, you know, in a sense, be heavenly minded. Get your mind up where Jesus is. Focus your attention, your heart, all that stuff uh, on him. And of course, as soon as you do that, you, you probably recognize, as I did, that there's a problem with spirituality like that. There's a problem that just naturally comes up and arises, and, and you, you've probably heard this before because the, the criticism is, you know, all this heavenly thinking, all this thinking about the, you know, uh, Jesus up in heaven, all that kind of stuff. But I got to live on earth. I can't live in heaven. I don't live on heaven. You know, have you met my husband or my wife or my kids? I live on earth. I have real problems. The world has real problems. We have to deal with those things. And so you probably remember, you guys have probably heard before, you know, Christians are so, they're, they're too heavenly minded to be of any earthly good. Anybody heard that? You guys heard that? Don't be afraid to raise your hand. I can't see anything for the blinding light anyway, so... It's just I'm looking out at a mass. Um, 
So you got, so a lot of you have, have heard that. And basically the logic is, look, there's all these problems out in the world. There's injustice and there's poverty and there's, 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 there's wars and there's racism. And, and all these Christians want to do is think about some afterlife where God's going to make it all candy someday. So why work on any of those problems now? Too heavenly minded to be of any earthly use. Of course, Karl Marx kind of made that, that whole idea famous. And probably a lot of you have heard this when he said, uh, religion is the opiate of the masses. Very famous quote from, uh, Karl Marx, and, and basically what he's saying is that Christianity or any other religion is really a drug that you take. You know, your, your life is kind of bad, maybe you're suffering, maybe you're miserable, maybe you're, you're, uh, you're bored, whatever, and so you try to invent this fairy in the sky that'll make it all better one day, and it's like opium, it's like a drug. Opium will make you feel better even when you are miserably ill or very sick or under the knife of surgery. That's what he's saying, that's what religion really does, is really makes you feel good about yourself when everything around you is really uh, pretty, pretty bad. And so uh, what Marx would say and others uh, after him would say that people will never work for this world, that people will never work for justice or for integrity or for environmentalism or for uh, uh, peace or prosperity. People will never work for those things here because all they'll be thinking about is some hope in the future. People need to, these Christians need to stop hoping and start doing. So what do you think about that? Well, I would say wait just a minute before we go too far, because if you look at what Paul's saying, he's saying, you know, uh, don't you see here, if you get rid of God, if you get, if you get rid of heaven, if you get rid of the whole idea of kind of anything else outside of us or uh, beyond us, you really don't solve anything, because if this life is all there is, if this is it, if, if when you die, there's nothing but darkness, nothing but unconsciousness, nothing but a body in the ground, if when you die, that's all there is, and then, and then at the, the end of history is nothing but a whimper, in other words, there'll be nobody around anyway to even know what you've done, the goodness that you've worked for on the earth, then what point is there anyway? And who would be to say? I mean, if that is it, if there's nothing else in life, if there's no meaning, if there's nothing beyond me, then why wouldn't I step on people to get what I need? Why wouldn't I rape, pillage, and plunder whatever I want to get what I need? Because there's nothing beyond me anyway. And so if you get rid of God and get rid of heaven... You solve nothing. It's like Dostoevsky said in his book, if God is dead, all things are permissible. Nothing is out of bounds. Nothing is, um, is, is impossible then because there is no boundary. There is no standard. So that's kind of the first one. The second one, that, the second problem that kind of comes up very quickly is, is that Christianity or, or spirituality in this way or really any religion is kind of just a fake. It, it's a fake support. It's like a, it's like a placebo that you take in a, in a drug study um, and the quote there has been that Christianity is just a crutch for weak people. Who's heard that one before? Okay, so even more of you have heard uh, that one. It's a little more popular. Maybe you've thought that way before or, or right now. And, um, you know, the saying goes is that, that, that Christians, what they really do, do is they use Jesus as a crutch. Uh, you know, they, they, they use Jesus to make themselves feel better, to get over their weaknesses, and, uh, and make me feel better about myself. But ultimately, uh, it's just a crutch, and it leaves you going through life crippled, and, uh, and hobbling. What do we say about that? Well, I think Paul here flips this on his, flips kind of the crutch argument on its head, uh, because this is what he says. He says something really profound in verse 4, and it doesn't matter if you're religious or not religious or Christian or not Christian, this applies to you. And he says, uh, when Christ, who is your life, appears. Christ, who is your life. What does that mean? Christ, who is uh, your life. Uh, he says a Christian basically is a person that's had a fundamental transformation. A fundamental transaction has happened. And if you're a Christian, you used to have a different life. There used to be other stuff that was your life. And now 
you have a new life. Christ is your life. He is the center of your being. You've heard people say things like, you know, work is his life. You know, his career is his life. Uh, Sports is her life. Uh, You know, that relationship is really her life. I mean, in other words, all her world, all his world is built on that thing. And what what Paul is saying is that whether you're religious or not, Christian or not, whatever, you have a life. You have a center. You have something of which you are thinking about, something which you're giving your heart away to, something that you are building your life around. You have a life too. Something that you rely on, that you lean on to impart meaning and purpose and significance into your life. And so Paul is saying, don't, don't, don't you see? It doesn't matter who you are. We all have our little crutches. We all have our crutches that we lean on. We all have our opium, our little drugs that we uh, rely on to fill ourselves, to give us um, meaning. We all have a life. And Paul says we can fill that with whatever we want, but it's still, that is what we are building our life on. We, you know, we might fill it with entertainment, with TV, with boyfriends, with girlfriends, with um, drivenness for career or money or education or whatever. We can fill it with a million different things, but whatever we fill it with, whatever we base it on, that is our life. So we all have in a sense, a crutch. And you might say, this guy is crazy because I don't have any crutches. I rely on me. I rely on myself, my, my heart, my, my, my reason. I rely, that's what I rely on. And I would say, well, then even that is your crutch because you are relying on yourself and you are putting all your faith and all your trust that in the end, you are enough. So no matter where you go, you cannot escape the fact that we all have a life, something we're building ourselves around, something we're filling ourselves with. And here's the catch, especially for us respectable uh, kind of middle class, you know, suburbanites, is that it's usually something very good. It's usually not something evil, right? I mean, it's usually we're, we're, we're kind of filling ourselves often with something that is actually a good thing. And the catch with that is that the better the thing, the more power it has to be an idol. The more, the more opportunity it has to take that center place in our hearts and our minds uh, that only Christ should occupy. And just an example of this recently, I don't know how many of you know who John Piper is. He's a pretty famous um, uh, pastor up in Minneapolis, and he decided a couple months ago to to resign from his job and uh, for a year and quit preaching, no blogging, no tweeting, no preaching, no no speaking, nothing like that for a year. Uh, why did he do that? He said because preaching had become his life. Preaching had become an idol in his heart. He said, "I want to preach so bad, I cannot stand it." I mean, what's better than preaching, right? I mean, for a Christian, I mean. And yet he had, lo- he had started to love preaching about Jesus even more than Jesus. And so he stepped down admirably so, and hopefully we'll be, we'll be back. Uh, the other thing that, that Paul shows us here is that whatever we, whatever we choose to fill ourselves with, uh, whatever, we, whatever we kind of stuff in there, whatever idols we kind of choose, there's always this law of diminishing returns. Um, there's, we always get back less and less and give more and more. And, uh, you know, the great uh, prophet Axel Rose has something to say about that. And if you know... If you guys are Guns N' Roses fans, see, I spelled Axel right. That's the most important. He's, it, this is a song, Mr. Brownstone. He said, I used to do a little, but a little wouldn't do. So a little got more and more. I used to do a little, but a little wouldn't do it. So a little got more and more. It's the law of diminishing returns because God has basically built the world that when we make our life anything else 
but him. When we build, we, we, when we make supreme in our world anything else but what is supreme, namely Jesus, suddenly everything starts slipping through our hands. Suddenly we, 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 we work for it more and more and we receive back less and less a law of diminishing returns. That's why St. Augustine said that all sin is really just disordered love. All sin is really just disordered love. In other words, we like the right things, but we just love them in the wrong order. So I love, my, I love all these things more than Jesus. It's okay to love your wife and your kids and your money as long as you love them in Christ. And so Paul says that there's, uh, if you love anything more than Jesus, it basically slips away like sand in our fingers. Like a, it's like a mist, like a beautiful sandcastle you build on the beach and then the next day the tide is coming. It's nothing but a pile of wet sand. And so what he's saying is that if, we, if, if, you, love, if you love respect... If you, if you work for respect, if you just, you know, at the center of your life, you just want to be respected, you, you work for respect, you'll never be respected. You'll lose it. It'll slip away from you. If, you. if you idolize your children or your family, you won't, you, you'll end up actually damaging them. If you love money, you'll never be satisfied with money. That's why Rockefeller, when he was the richest man on the earth, asked, how much money is enough? He said, one more dollar. There's, if you love it, you can't be satisfied with it. It's like the way, that's the way that God has built the world. If we love anything chiefly in and of itself, we lose it. And it slips away and ends up a pile of wet sand. And what Paul is saying is that like Jason, it doesn't do, it's not enough just to say, don't do this, don't do that. We have to hear a sweeter song. We have to hear a sweeter tune. We have to hear a better, um, a better melody, something with more, something with more power. And so the question this morning is really, what is, what, is your, what is your life? What are you building your life on? What is your crutch? What is your, what is your drug? What are you fill, filling yourself with? A couple of questions you could ask yourself that would be, you know, Paul's talking about setting his heart and mind on things. It would be, where does your heart and your mind go whenever you have time to think, time to fantasize? Where does, where does your heart and mind go at that point? What is it that, that drives you? What is it that if you lost this thing, it would be like losing your life. Your life just wouldn't be really worth living uh, anymore. That's how we know what's kind of become our life. And, and, and what Paul is saying is that power comes in your life. Freedom comes in your life when you get your loves ordered. When you get your loves in the right order. When you love the supreme thing supremely. Namely, of course, uh, Jesus. And, Je- and he says this has a ton of power in our lives. And it's very uh, relevant. It, has a, it can do several things. The first thing it, do- it can do is it has the power... Uh, to refine, uh, the power to redefine, the power to redefine us. And, and Paul uses what in Scripture is actually an odd phrase. Uh, if you've read much of Paul, you'll notice he's always talking about being in Christ, in Christ, in Christ. And, and here he mentions four times being with Christ, uh, which, is, which is pretty, pretty rare uh, in the New Testament. And so you see in 2.20, if with Christ you die, 3.1, you have been raised with Christ, 3.3, 3, your life is hidden with Christ, 3.4, you will also appear uh, with him. And what Paul is saying there is, if you have believed on Jesus, then you're with him. If, you have, if, if, if he is your trust, if he is your life, you are with him. And everything that is true of him is true of you. All of his righteousness is your righteousness because you are with him. He is in heaven and you are too because you are with him. And that has the power, Paul is saying, to redefine us. Lots of people, lots of things are clamoring to define us as people. If you don't believe that, just watch a commercial sometime. You'll see they're trying to define you as a certain kind of person. So you'll buy 
their product. And what Paul is saying is that once our loves get ordered around him, that we can do that because we are with him. And we can say to all the other things that would seek that supreme place in our life and say, you are not my life. You do not define me. I saw this once in a, there was a woman, a grown woman I, I knew that uh, she, she was literally defined by her parents, even into to old age. Her parents, she rose and fell uh, with her parents' words. And sometimes they were giving her encouragement. Sometimes they were just, you know, mean as a snake and uh, whatever, you know, she just lived for their approval. She lived for them to say, you know, you're a great, you're great. And, 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 uh, and my counsel to her was, you need to say to your parents, I love you, I will always respect and honor you but you are not my life. You will not, your words no longer have the ultimate definition of me because th- that privilege goes alone to Jesus. Same thing in a, I did a marriage ceremony last year and uh, I was saying to the husband and the wife, I was marrying them in the, it's like the oddest thing you can say in a wedding ceremony is to tell each other, tell, the, tell, tell them that, uh, you know, your love is not the basis of this marriage, but, but actually Jesus is. And I, I said to them, you need to actually leave and look at your spouse and say, I will always seek to love, honor, cherish you, and keep my commitments to you. But I know I will disappoint you. I know I'll disappoint you. You'll disappoint me. We'll, uh, we'll screw things up. And at that point, I'll be able to say, I can forgive you because you are not my life. I love you, but you're not my life. I'm defined by Jesus. I'm defined. I have my heart and mind focused and set uh, on him, and I can love you in Christ. Now I can love my kids in Christ because they are, they are not my life, but they're a gift, a gift from the one who is my life. I can love my money in Christ because they're, it's not my life, but it is a gift and a servant of the one who is my life. So it has the power to totally redefine us, has the power to uh, bestow intimacy. Uh, you see that in, uh, uh, in verse uh, 2 here. Or verse 1, he says, If you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. He says, You have been raised with Christ. And where is he? Seated at the right hand of God. How do you think it makes the Father feel to have his very Son, perfectly righteous and glorious, having completed everything he was asked to do, seated at his right hand? I'd say his heart is... The Father's heart is bursting with joy and love at the fact that he is sitting there. And what he's saying is that you've been seated with him. You are there at the Father's right hand too. You have his eyes. His eyes for Jesus are the same as his eyes for you. If you're sitting beside somebody, you, you have their ear, right? I mean, if, I, if, I, if someone was standing right here, I could whisper things. I could talk to them. I, I have their attention. He's saying if you're with Christ, you have his you have his attention. You have his ear. You have the place of joy and honor. And, and, and you have his eyes and his ears to you. And as I thought about that, I thought, man, how, that, how much would that transform my perfectionism? Because I'm a guy that just, I mean, there's no harsher critic of me than me. And I'll beat myself silly. I see everything through a lens of condemnation because everything I don't do perfectly is you know, a big failure. How would that transform our perfectionism? Suddenly, I wouldn't, I, mean, I wouldn't have to live to be perfect. Being perfect would not be my life anymore. Being respected and honored by people would not be my life because I'm already at the place of respect and honor. I already have the Father's ear. I'm already seated with Christ, raised with Him at the Father's right hand. 
So we can't just take our can't just take our eyes and our heart off of those things. We have to replace that by setting them on, focusing them on Christ. So the next is the the power of security. Uh, the other power he provides, the other the other the other sweeter melody that Christ plays is is really to give us the power of security. And he says that in uh, verse three here. He says, "You have died, and your life is hidden with Christ and God." When you first read that, it kind of sounds like. Eh, it's kind of bad news. I mean, like, you mean that my life is obscured? I'm kind of like locked away somewhere in an attic. I'm hidden away and nobody even really sees me anymore. But that's not, that's not really the force of the language at all. Uh, what he's saying is, is you know, what, what things do you hide? What things do you lock away for safekeeping? What things do you hide in your home that you wouldn't want anyone else to get? Your valuables, right? Your treasures, the things that you value and treasure the most, those are the things that you hide away. Those are the things you protect and lock. And what he's saying is that if you're in Christ, if you believed on him, suddenly you've been locked, you've been secured, you've been hidden with Christ in God. And he's saying you are a treasure. God values you so much. He treasures you so much. Everything else in the world could pass away, but he has you locked and hidden and will not let you go. And this is a big deal because security is one of the biggest idols in our culture. I mean, we think about our financial security or our relationship security. It's so big that kind of defines us. We want to be, uh, you know, we look at our bank statements or our bottom line, our net worth or who we're with or not with, and that is what um, is defining us. And what Paul is saying is, um, if you are in him, you have ultimate security. My life is hidden with Christ. It is eternal. It will Last. I mean, don't you want your life to count? Don't you want it to last? Don't you want it to have significance in the world? The only way to get that is to be tied to, united to, connected with the only one who will last. The only one who of himself, of his essence, is eternal. And here's the deal. Every other thing you have, every other love you might create, every other thing you might fill your heart with, it can be gone tomorrow. There is nothing that you and I have today that cannot be gone tomorrow. You might say, I have, my, I have a great portfolio, it's conservatively invested. It's one bad decision, one stock market crash, one government collapse away from, from being gone. It, there's no security there. Uh, you might say, this, this person is my, 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 this relationship is my security. There's no guarantee. But if your chief love is Christ, if your life is really Jesus... What he's saying is that you may lose many things on this earth. You may suffer many things, and they will all be painful. But if your chief love is Christ, all those losses will only seek to drive you deeper into your real life. All those losses will only seek to drive you deeper into and focus more, set your mind and heart further on Christ, and you will have eternity because you, are, you have security uh, there. So the power of uh, security, and, and lastly, the power of recognition. And I think maybe this one might be the most powerful for us because I think, I don't know a single person that just simply doesn't want to be noticed, that just doesn't want to be called out, that doesn't want to be uh, applauded, doesn't want to be recognized. You know, they built a whole sitcom, Cheers, on going to a place where somebody knows your name. That is the, you know, that's the, that's the essence. And I think what Paul says here is pretty uh, amazing because in verse 4 he says, when Christ, who is your life, appears, so Christ is going to appear, but he says, then you also will appear with him in glory. You will also appear with him 
in glory. So Paul is saying what is temporarily concealed will one day be eternally revealed. In other words, nobody can promise that you're going to get noticed or applauded or, or recognized here uh, on this earth. But Paul is saying if you are in Christ, if you're hidden with him, if your real life is with him, then there will be a day when, when what is temporarily concealed, namely your life with him, will be eternally revealed in all the earth. All of creation will look and see and behold the sons and the daughters of God. You will be with him in his entourage when he is when he appears, you will appear with him. You will be recognized. You may feel very hidden now. You may feel very isolated now. There is a day where he says what is temporarily concealed, what is temporarily hidden, will be eternally revealed. And how do you get this? How do you get this kind of power in your life? Well, Paul says, really, you must die. He says that in chapter 2. He says it. Uh, in verse 3 here, you've, he says, you've died and your life is hidden with Christ. You have to die with Christ in order to be raised with him. You have to die to all the other chief loves that you would order in your life, to die to all the other things that you would give supreme value to and trust that Christ is a sweeter song. Believe that Jesus is actually a better tune, a more alluring promise than whatever the sirens tend to offer you. And the good news is this, that connection to him, that union with him is not something you work for, not something you're going to gain, not something you're going you're gonna, to uh, earn the merit badge for. It's something that comes as a solitary gift from Christ himself who has died and is, has been raised again for your sins and for his glory. So friends, what is your life today? What are you building your life upon? Will it last? Where are you setting your heart and your mind and your dreams and your affections? What Paul says is if we love the supreme thing, everything else will find its rightful place beneath him. May Christ reign in our hearts today and forever. Let's pray. Father, we rely on you now because uh, the siren's call is uh, so powerful, so alluring, so promising, making us uh, many promises of satisfaction and joy and delight. And I pray you help us have faith to believe that you are a sweeter song a more beautiful melody, a grander vision encapsulating all of reality. Come and reign in our hearts. May we die to ourselves and live to Christ. In Jesus' name, amen.